Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. sometimes have a little trepidation about mixing my artistic mediums when I'm trying to describe things. Describing a movie as literary, describing a book as cinematic, but there really is nothing quite like that feel of a big summer blockbuster. Whether it is on the screen or on the page, or even, hell, a big album or something. That expansiveness of storytelling, the feeling of pyrotechnics, and usually a really good fight scene or three. I've wanted to do this episode for a while, and this year we finally put together the right double header of books. Two books that came out this summer that are, well, they're summer blockbusters. They are big, epic action stories. And not only that, they are action stories that feel like more than just empty calories. Because that, you know, that can kind of be the one thing about blockbusters right you go and you have your popcorn and your candy and your soda and you watch the movie and you're in the air conditioning which is nice and you leave and you're sort of the satisfaction only lasts for as long as you were watching the thing or maybe a few minutes afterwards it takes something really special to linger to feel like oh i would go back to that world oh this has kept me thinking about my world even though i just signed up to watch somebody beat somebody else up in a really cool way I should note, too, and we will come back to this a little later on. When I'm talking about blockbusters, I do mean something that has gone a little bit out of vogue over the last 10 years or so. And uh, it's kind of too easy to pile on to the Marvel machine at this point, because we all know, even if we're still buying tickets or tuning into the streaming shows, that they feel inhuman. They don't quite feel real. And it's not just the Marvel movies, you know? It's everything that is happening with movie studios right now, and that is rippling out across the creative industries. But before we go down that particular rabbit hole, let's dive into a wuxia martial arts epic, the kind of thing where you read the book with your jaw on the ground because of how much fun you are having. S.L. Huang is a Hollywood stunt performer, firearms expert, and Hugo Award winner. With a math degree from MIT and credits in productions like Battlestar Galactica and Top Shot, the author of the fantasy novella Burning Roses, as well as the Cass Russell novels, which include Zero Sum Game, Null Set, and Critical Point. Huang's short fiction has appeared in Analog, a magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Strange Horizons, Tor.com, and more. Their new book, Huang's new book, The Water Outlaws, is, as I just said, a wuxia martial arts epic. It is an absolute blast, based on one of the oldest novels in Chinese history, and one of the oldest novels in Chinese culture, called Water Margin. 
it has a bit of a Robin Hood kind of thing to it, which is a useful shorthand. It was certainly helpful for me because there are these bandits stealing from the rich to give, if not to the poor, to themselves, because they're all pretty poor, but also they are trying to topple repressive power structures and model what community life could look like. The book is a delight from page one, and it not only is that summer blockbuster action epic thing, but it also brings up these thorny, complicated questions about humanity, questions that clearly humanity has been grappling with for centuries, if not millennia. We started talking, and immediately I had to ask what it was like diving into this classic, classic story, updating it, rewriting it, and making it Huang's own. I'm a big fan of fan fiction and remixes and have in my whole life, so this was very natural to me. It was very natural to me to choose, oh, this is the storyline I'm interested in telling, and I can move this other storyline so it kind of overlaps, and I can reference this one as an Easter egg. You know, that's very fun for me. I've written fairy tale retellings and references mm-hmm. as well and reimagined stuff. To me, it's all in conversation, and, and that's really, really cool. There's actually a funny story in Water Margin's history. There are four novels in Chinese history that are considered the classic Chinese novels. Sometimes six, but always those four, definitely. And one of those is Water Margin. And if you say there are six, one of the other two that you count is called Jinping Mei, and it's a, I want to say 17th century-ish novel. And it's, it's basically a fan fiction of Water Margin. <laughs> Water Margin has almost no sexual content. And Jinping Mei introduced something like 72 ultra kinky on-page sex scenes between the Water Margin characters. Great. <laughs> so fan fiction is way older than we think. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, this is a huge part of Water Margin's history as well. The ways people have reimagined it. And I've, I've certainly seen many adaptations of it for television. There's some very famous video games that have been based on it. Trading cards, like, you know, this has been something that people have done for a long time. So that felt very natural to me. And it's just fun. It's fun to, to do. It's like a puzzle. There is something appealing, obviously, about these stories that people keep coming back to over the course of centuries. And I feel like a big theme amongst so many of those is the idea of broken systems and how do we there's um there's a line in this book how could civilization be so rotten at the core and still function i read that and i was like oh that's it that's the question we are asking every single day and clearly it was a question that people were also asking in the 14th century and i want to know about how you were balancing the thrum of history and also really pulling things forward to make it feel like those concerns are still so viable in the present too. Wow, I love this question. I also love that line and I was, the audience can't see, but I was smiling when you started to say it. Not because I think it's actually a good thing in society, but I, you know, just that you picked that up because as an author, we always love readers who are on the same page with us, pun intended. <laughs> um, do you ever read ProPublica or investigative yeah. journalism like that? Sometimes I read these ProPublica articles and sometimes they're on like big national issues, but a lot of times they're on these issues that only concern a few people per every thousands of people or something. You know, there was one recently on child custody issues falling through the cracks, right? I don't know anybody this is happening to, but apparently it's more widespread than just this case study that they were covering in the article. And it was absolutely devastating. I've read about things like pig butchering scams, but those are the sort of like phishing scams where they pretend to be financial advice and, and mm. then they like completely destroy people's lives. And they were writing about the human trafficking aspect. That was just incredibly informative. There's so many issues like that. And I've had this thought before that if this was the one issue in the world, we could all get together 
and insisting gets solved. You know, we could all stand together, however big of a percentage of these billions of people who are empathetic and love other humans, and we could we could solve this. But the problem is, it isn't one issue, right? It's so many. And when I read these articles, or I I, I learn about these things that don't necessarily touch my life personally, but are so upsetting and so monstrous in the things that people do to other people or the ways that people can, you know, real humans can slip through the cracks and be traumatized by society failing them. There's a sense to me of how can this happen to this person who lives under the same government I do? And certainly I have many problems with my government, right? (laughs) But the government is not failing my life so presently in those specific ways. I struggle with seeing how this can happen to somebody and yet my life is basically functional and that I, I cannot know this if I wanted to. And that happens all the time, you know? There's plenty that I don't know about that's happening all the time. Yeah, it, it feels kind of like all of the characters in a way. Lou Dawes may be the one who is both the most, somehow most aware and the most oblivious. So I feel like all of them are experiencing that reckoning over the course of this book at different times and to different extents and prompted by different things. There is something about that feeling of part of the human condition is always working to try to make humanity better if we can. And it's nice to be reminded that sometimes that means revolution. And it's hard because like, one thing I really wanted to do in The Water Outlaws is portray people's different reactions to oppression. Because as an underrepresented minority, you know, I feel like a lot of times we're expected to react the same to things. We're expected to all have the same opinions on issues that affect us. And this is completely not true, right? If you've (laughs) met humans, you know this is not true, right? There's so many arguments and differences intra-community and in the ways we sometimes very strongly and vehemently disagree. And I did want to show that diversity of humanity because I feel like we don't often get that in fiction that represents, uh, say, people who are underrepresented in Western media. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes we, we have to think about revolution, but thinking about revolution is dangerous. It involves violence. It involves innocent people dying. And I didn't want to shy away from that either. I mean, this book is a martial arts adventure, but these deeper themes of like when violence is justified if it ever is and when we rise up against a society that's basically functioning for a lot of people you know when does that become justified i hope i've done justice to some of those themes yeah i mean this uh the fact that this book came out during the summer of barbenheimer i was thinking so much about <laughs> sorry that <laughs> That took me a minute to hear, hear it said instead of read. Okay, please. I think it's maybe the first time I've said it out loud, and I don't know how I feel about it personally. I might end <laughs> up re-recording that question when I go back to edit this. Um, but the 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 God's teeth in particular, and like so so much of the conversations that are happening around like this this incredible power, just were make I think because the the international media was sort of like hey let's talk about the atomic bomb again um not just because of the movie these questions of like what the you know the pursuit of technology the pursuit of power at all costs and sort of the ways in which the the people who get lifted up to do that Kaijing is certainly one of them they sort of get to just do it. And it doesn't matter if they kill people because it's, you know, it's for the good of the empire yeah. or yeah. whatever the thing yeah. might be. And I loved how, um, despite the fact that it is like a fun action story, 
you didn't shy away from forcing us into thinking about that. This is these, these are wow, all of these thoughts that you just said are things that I grapple with a lot <laughs> and that I think about a lot. So people who read a lot of tour fiction might remember I had a story published there called As Last Diving Out, a story about weapons of mass destruction. And I wrote it after I lived in Japan for three years. I have a lot of Japanese family and I went to both museums in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and those experiences felt important and they also completely wrecked me both of them for days and I think about this stuff a lot you know I think it's important to me as a human living in society to think about this stuff and to think deeply about it especially as somebody of Chinese heritage I'm also, for those who don't know, I'm a stunt person and weapons expert for Hollywood film and television. There's something when you work in something that's adjacent to telling stories of violence. I think it's very natural for us to try to think deeply about violence. I don't want to be a person who doesn't do that and work with weapons, right? I'm very aware, for example, as also a scientist, of how much technology has been driven by war. The Cold War drove so much technology, even though we weren't actually using the weapons, you know, and these are questions I think about a lot. And there's a secondary plot line in this book that is not from Water Margin. And that is the plot you mentioned with this sort of like weapon research. That plot line is a, it's a little bit my love letter to the Song Dynasty on the history of which this is based. And the Song Dynasty is amazing, by the way. For people who don't know about it, this was about the time the Dark Ages were happening in Europe. And I know historians are kind of getting away from the term Dark Ages because it's obviously very <laughs> simplifying and flattening and stuff. But, you know, just to give an idea... The Song Dynasty was this amazing explosion of innovation and invention and science. And obviously, I've already said the government in this book is very regressive. We don't <laughs> like it. We want to rebel against it, right? And I think this is a place where there were multiple truths. The Song Dynasty was not great in many ways, just as many historical governments have not been. <laughs> but it was also true that they were inventing the compass, paper money, gunpowder, paper, the printing press this amazing, amazing explosion of invention. And this was actively encouraged by the government. And as a science nerd, I love that. And I wanted to write a storyline about that. But then also grappling with this idea of, well, yes, one of these inventions was gunpowder, right? This is the kind of thing that I want to dig into when we talk about the intersection of science and technology and invention and that intersection with war and violence in government. You kind of already mentioned, like, you work as a stunt coordinator, the fight scenes in this book are so good. Not only are they so much fun, they're so clear. Every single movement, it, it, like, it feels old school. It feels like somebody set up a camera and a fight scene happened, which I think is something I love about so many of the, like, um, the first wuxia films that I saw, like, just right? as they were starting to break into the U.S., where, like, the fight scenes in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where it's, like, two or three oh, static camera shots and they just go as opposed to the sort of modern cut, 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 cut. Yep. Where you can't track anybody. Yep. Tell me about bringing your worlds together. I wish we could have a whole hour just to talk about film. The secret to fighting in film is that, and everybody who does fights for films knows this and talks about it. It's always driven by story. And the emotions, the something uh, one of my fight instructors used to call the oh shit moments. Those are what really make a fight. You know, it's not the punch here, kick here, take two steps. You know, cool weapons, cool techniques and moves. Those are all awesome. But what really engages a fight in, in the context of a movie is what the characters care about. Like their character stakes and the emotion. And they're like, oh shit, I'm about to die. I need to do something 
those moments are for me what really define a fight and that's definitely informed by me coming out of movies so I really try to do that but I also what you said about old school movies filming wide or at least much wider shots than nowadays that's also something that I have so many thoughts on that I could expound <laughs> because for those who, who kind of haven't noticed a lot of modern film does and I think Born Identity was one of the ones that really started pushing this trend where you get these very very quick cuts and we can't necessarily see the full moves there's something about being able to see more of the fight that is very beautiful to me in terms of appreciating that skill i really love to be able to see that as an aesthetic and stylistic choice in film and it's not that i don't like the quick cut fight scenes i do very much enjoy many of these movies but exactly what you're saying about like that very classic feeling of, of martial arts action i love wuxia you know water margin is often thought of as the first wuxia novel period i was very interested in writing that and writing martial arts action and i do strive for that feel in this i think fight scenes can have a lot of different vibes depending on how we write them how we uh, film them if we're in movies and i wanted this to feel like a Hong Kong martial arts film, you know, when you're reading these fights. Um, and I, I really went for that. And it's absolutely delightful to hear that you get that vibe off of it. Oh my God. Yeah. Like in the very beginning, that first fight that Lin Chong has with the trainees, there's a line where you wrote, like, she puts one hand behind her back as she like jumps off this guy. And, and I just, I could see it in this beautiful clarity. And I was like, oh, I understood the language that you were writing in, if that makes sense. I was like, yes, I know exactly how this book is going to flow. Even though I like, obviously I couldn't predict things. There was just, you know what I mean? That tactile quality. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And I, I it's that's incredibly <laughs> flattering to me because, you know, we say a lot of times as authors, there's a lot of signaling we do in the first few pages of a book that readers might not necessarily be aware that we're <laughs> trying to do, right? A lot of times we're trying to signal genre. We're trying to signal like, this is the experience you're going to get when you read that first couple pages and start making promises to the reader of this is the kind of book you have in your hands. So amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely what I was going for. You talked about trying to set things up in the first couple pages or the first couple minutes for viewers or readers or whatever. You want to sort of clearly define the stakes of like, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Yes, there might be complications on either side, but I want you to know what's going on. And I so enjoyed that the heroes of this book are all complex and complicated and have to make these very challenging moral gray area questions. The villains of this book, just fucking villains. And I want to know about that because that I feel like there was a move away from that, certainly in genre, but in fiction, because it was like, oh, everybody's complicated. And the stuff that we've been living through over, let's say, the last six years or so, it's like, no, some of these people are just fucking villains. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love the way that you're reading this book. I have to say, I think there's a lot of truth in that in terms of where my mindset was as well, to be honest, because my first books, uh, if anybody has read the Cast Russell series, starting with Zero Sum Game, he definitely was in the, these villains are also complicated and we can kind of understand where they're coming from. I have to say, I, I love that. I love books where you maybe don't even know who the villain is. There are, mm -hmm. there are people acting against each other's interests, but... We sympathize with all sides. I mean, I, I think I, I tend I tend to be optimistic about humans. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. And until around, let's just pull a year out of the air, 2016 or so, <laughs> I kind of had this idea in my head that most people are good. And I still do think that, but those percentages have shifted a little bit, right? <laughs> like I thought the vast majority of people were basically good people going about their lives and trying not to do shitty things to other people and trying not to step on other people for their own gain and stuff like that. I knew there were people who did this but I thought it was only a very, very small percentage, like minuscule. But 
Yeah, I think over the course of most of the last decade, there's been a lot of reckoning with just like the amount of energy that some people have been putting in in my country to taking away other people's rights and destroying their lives. It's incredibly upsetting. It's hard to think about, especially as somebody who's in several minority populations, it's hard to think about that many people who don't think I'm human, don't want me to have these rights. And now now realizing that this is a much greater problem in scope than perhaps I knew. And and like many things, I grapple with it in my fiction. (laughs) And the original Water Margin keeps telling us they're heroes in the original. And they're very morally gray. They make a lot of like questionable choices. And perhaps maybe that's why I was so, one of the reasons I was so interested in retelling it. I definitely wanted to interrogate that. But it is unquestionably true throughout the whole book that the people they're fighting against, these corrupt and oppressive government officials, are way worse than they are. And I thought that was an interesting paradigm that we don't, you're right, in modern fiction, we don't usually see that as the setup. And yet it kind of is a lot of our real world, right? (laughs) You know, like the people we vote for where we're saying, there's so many things I dislike about you, but you're on the same train I'm going on the same direction, you know, and and these other people over here uh, really trying so hard to make it so that my rights are taken away. We are in the position of making these choices, not in the same way, but you know, uh, certainly that that kind of thinking has been, I don't know, something that's been on my mind a lot lately at any rate. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like too that you, in the book... The group at Liangshan has, they all go through it in different ways. They are all thinking about it with yeah. different balances. I mean, even true for Lu Junyi too, where she's sort of like, well, okay, I can do a little bit like maybe I can. And then she's realizing by the end, she's sort of realizing like, oops, kind of, you know, there's a yeah. like, I, I tried and it wasn't enough across cultures. We have been telling these stories of like, how much are you going to take? And I I just love that everybody has a different answer in this book. Yeah, I 100% wanted to do that because the answers are different for everybody. And that makes it really hard to take collective action sometimes. We know that sometimes we have to, but that line, people can reasonably disagree on it, right? You're not an evil person if you think the line is, you know, five feet away from somebody else versus somebody else, you know, it's not like we're on different sides, but those can cause the most vehement disagreements and arguments, like much more than the people that are enacting the things that we're so angry at. I really wanted to explore people who react to things differently. And I don't think people will agree with everything every one of the bandits does, but I hope people understand and feel that everybody's human and and reacting in a reasonable way for their background. (laughs) Not necessarily reasonable on an absolute scale, but like, oh, I, I see how you got there. There's something I really love about the way that magic exists in this book, where it's more or less right up front. We're introduced to the God's teeth and sort of this possibility of people being able to manipulate forces that are larger than our own. But then there are these just these little glimpses of other things, like one of the absolute, if I had seen it in a movie theater, would have been like standing up and cheering moments is this moment of tattoo magic that I was just like, this is so cool. Oh, thank you. And it's like, there, gone in a flash. This is super informed by my love of Chinese stories and Chinese literature and movies, which has always been a part of my media consumption and tends to treat magic and the supernatural fairly differently than we see in more American or European derived epic fantasies. It's sort of always there, but then it comes up when it comes up and it doesn't when it, it's just part of the world. And you don't see that a lot. I think the overarching thing people tend to do in fantasy in at least the North American markets and the British markets is to have these complicated magic systems with rules and that some people can do magic and some people cannot do magic. And the base assumptions that I see in 
things like Wuxia media are, are totally different. And Xianxia media, Water Margin is no exception. Water Margin is mainly not a supernatural kind of book, but like many things from that time period, every so often somebody is like a sorcerer and doing like, you know, Taoist spells or something, you know, just ran out of nowhere, right? And there's one character in this book who's very skilled at that kind of thing. And, and in the original Water Margin, it, that character is as well, just kind of comes up randomly every so often. I wanted to play with that in terms of putting this in, in hopefully a way that would also be accessible to American readers. I, I so wanted to introduce this story and this a type of storytelling to people who may not be as familiar with it. I feel like it's uh, I'm helping in a small way expand the ideas of fantasy that we have and just the way people think about magic, right? Because if it's just a sort of texture of your world, you're going to think about it like it's always there and not necessarily some sort of regimented or special thing. Having this kind of different way of looking at it was very intentional. Yeah, as both a reader and as a writer, it was such a joyful reminder to allow for fun, you know, like no disrespect to Brandon Sanderson and his incredible best-selling work, but his whole like, it must be X. I don't know. I like seeing this world where magic is more fluid and it also made me appreciate other things that you were doing sort of subtly drawing attention to you know this book is set in the equivalent of what like the 11th century and they're talking about you know characters who ride the 16 winds and there is this expansiveness and this idea that historically speaking humanity has embraced that expansiveness and it was really only recently that we've tried to codify and name and condense. And I like that this is a really wonderful reminder to know, turn around and be open instead. Thank you. I do feel like that pendulum swings back and forth, you know, yeah. historically, yeah. right? Like we have this conception that we've always moved in one direction, one more progressive direction. And I, I don't think that's true. I'm not yeah. a historical expert or scholar in that, but everything I read about and sometimes it's not in the same ways, right? Where we're, like, one thing I was trying to do with this book was we have this society that's quite sexist and quite gender essentialist, and yet it doesn't have the transphobia that we see here. And I feel like that is sometimes surprising to people, but I feel like it's also historically accurate because there have been so many times when people didn't think about queerness in the same way. People didn't think about gender in the same way. I did a lot, a lot of research on queer history for this. I did so much research because I, speaking as a, as a person who is not on the gender binary and a queer person in America, but also having lived internationally and having heritage in other cultures, I didn't want to portray this as if it was 21st century America either. And I just did so much reading and talking to people about the way other cultures do it, about the way historically, because obviously there have been tons of non-binary people in history. as such a kick, you know, reading about historical non-binary people, historical transness. When I watch Chinese media, it's actually amazing. There can be this society with fairly strict gender roles, and yet, like, people switching gender roles, women dressing as men, stuff like that, is treated much differently than you would see in a Western film or something. And I see this over and over in Chinese media, and it's those different kind of default assumptions in terms of how we think about gender, how we think about prejudice against people. For example, in many ancient times and places, and also in my book as well, queer men, men being queer, dressing as women, etc., was much more accepted than the other way. And, mm -hmm. you know, here in modern day America, I would say, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but queer men tend to get brands of sexism and toxic masculinity that queer women or even a, a queer assigned female at birth people don't. And I don't know, there, obviously it's much more complex than I'm <laughs> distilling down here. But I guess since we were just talking about the queerness in the book, I'm slightly amused that I think nobody's noticing this. 
I have five POVs in this book. And one of them I wrote entirely without third person pronouns. And <laughs> I, this was very much a craft challenge. And the reason I did it was not to leave it ambiguous, but because Chinese, especially earlier than this century, did not gender, still does not gender in speech, but also did not gender in writing, despite being, you know, a very patriarchal and gender essentialist society. So, you know, if I'm writing this sort of a translation convention, all the trans characters, their pronouns, of course, I'm just, you know, quote unquote, translating into English properly. But what happens when that is kind of you can't really do that maybe without introducing a neo pronoun or something, which then why aren't the characters discussing this? Because in this society that's otherwise regressive about various gender roles and stuff. And so the, the most proper decision felt like not putting in any pronouns at all. And if the characters are using pronouns, I'm just translating them without a gendered pronoun, translating quote unquote. And um, nobody's noticing it. <laughs> This is how our society is about gender, right? Like, it's hilarious to me. And I, I was talking to my sister and I'm like, I'm kind of tickled nobody's noticing it. But also, like, I kind of want people to talk about it a little bit. People are just not noticing. It's funny. <laughs> Julia V. and Ken Bibel are the authors of the Seattle Slayers series, as well as the brand new series, The Phoenix Horde. Julia likes stories about monsters, money, and good food. She was born in Macau and grew up in Northern California. She's a graduate of the Viable Paradise Workshop. Ken turned his childhood love for reading sci-fi and fantasy into a career in prosthetics, and then came back to writing books about plucky underdogs and ancient magical artifacts. He grew up in Northern California and now lives in Southern California with his wife, two kids, and too many tomato plants. These two have been writing together since middle school, a fact that charms me to no end. And Ebony Gate, the first book in their new series, The Phoenix Horde, benefits from the fact that they have known each other and written together for so long. The book follows an assassin, magical swordswoman named Emiko, who used to be the blade of the Sung clan until something tragic and terrible happened. She was stuck with the moniker The Butcher of Beijing for a while, but now she lives a quiet, relatively quiet life in San Francisco until a Shinigami, a god of death, shows up and calls in a family blood debt that sends Emiko across San Francisco, trying to recover the titular ebony gate that holds back hungry ghosts who would otherwise overwhelm San Francisco. It is a spectacular new entry into the glorious canon of urban fantasy. When we sat down, I asked them to tell me about how they got started. We actually started writing in the eighth grade, and it was totally organic. I mean, we bonded initially over fantasy novels, and we were both reading a, a ton back then. We were both those kids who always came to school with extra books because we would be bored and just be reading in the back of the class. Yeah, and we had all the same, you know, nerdy overlaps. Magic the Gathering cards and Dungeons and Dragons, and I was a huge Sandman fan. We had to rely on, like, ancient technology to collaborate back then, too. We had a five and a quarter floppy disk we used to exchange by our lockers at school. And Ken had this printer at home, like, it was like a, a daisy wheel. Yeah, a daisy wheel printer that sounded like a Gatling gun when it was printing. <laughs> and we, uh, we entered a contest. We wrote a sword and sorcery novel that is a little cringy in retrospect. I had to print it out at like 11 o'clock at night. I had to bury the printer under piles of bath towels so I wouldn't wake up the house. It printed out on perforated paper. Yeah, it's a lot easier now because we have Google Docs, right? So we can write at the same time. And I think we have like a million words together under our belt. I know, not including our 13-year-old rose, right? 
30 years later, I do NaNoWriMo and I call him after and I'm like, that was really fun. We should write some more. And I like sent him a short story that I had started. And I was like, why do you write the next part? And that was early 2017. We've been doing that ever since now. I'm not a TV writer, but they always talk about the TV writer's room. And I feel like Ken and I have the mini writer's room. It's just the two of us. We like to say that between the two of us, we have one brain. And we spend a ton of time on the phone working out stories, talking about characters, and just kind of figuring everything out. It's so much workshopping all the time, but it's also so much fun because we're, we're really good friends. And so our workshopping is incredibly inefficient because we're always talking about family and everything else that's going on. You had said something about like, when you guys started talking about this book, you wanted to bring your myths, your conception of the world. You wanted to put it on the West Coast. Tell me more about being like, all right, we know we're going to do urban fantasy. We know it's going to be on the West Coast. Then what? At a very basic level, we wanted to write something that was going to be really fun. You know, we were already doing something in our Facebook group where we were just looking up and talking about Asian myths and monsters, the kinds of things that our parents told us about. And we're like, let's do this, but then let's make everything Asian. You know, let's not do vampires and fae, and instead we'll do demons and death gods and fox spirits. It just seemed like that was going to be a really fun twist on the genre that we'd be able to dig into it and we would just enjoy every second of it. I mean, we blasted through the writing of this. We did also have a massive rewrite of it, which was also fun. And I don't say that lightly because I actually detest revision and Ken is great at revision. But because the book changed so much, the world expanded, the idea behind it was like, what if people were descended from dragons and like what kind of characteristics would they have? And who would be that one person that, you know, that nail that sticks up, right? Like, who's that difficult person? And that was the genesis for Emiko, our protagonist. So th those were the ingredients early on where Ken said, okay, the myth and lore of our parents. Because that was another thing. We didn't know how to bridge the gap with our parents. My dad was a reader. Ken's mom was a reader. But we did not grow up reading the same things. Ken and I grew up on the Western canon. I read a lot of Tolkien, right? Like we read a lot of the classics. Ken was talking about Dragonlance the other day, right? So we had some really early Western dragon notions. And I think in some ways, digging into the East Asian myth and magic was just another way of connecting to our parents, you know? You mentioned revision and... I am such a sucker for a good acknowledgments page. And there's a line in the acknowledgments for Ebony Gate about how this book started in a very different setting. And I was immediately like double asterisk on a post-it note and stuck it down to talk to you about it. Cause I, I, I gotta know like what was different, what changed? Well, for one thing, the length, it was half the size. It was like a 60,000 word story. When we first wrote it, we went to look for early readers on this very active Facebook group called Fans of Urban Fantasy. And 100 people raised their hands and said, yes, yes. And so we did questionnaires and we got surveys back from them. And they were like, we want to know more about this and we want to know more about that. And so between that and we were working with a book coach as well. We were like, oh, we could make this a lot bigger. We could build up this aspect of the world more. We could spend more time on this turf war aspect of what's happening in magical San Francisco. And so that book looked very different our first go around. I think Julia hit it on the head. The story about Amico was there in the first pass, but the world was not nearly as deep around her. And we fleshed out so much of the world. We made the antagonist a much bigger deal. 
and that forced us to really build more of like a superstructure around him and all the family politics really got a lot more developed out of it. Speaking of fleshing out the world, this book is so rooted in San Francisco that I started reading it and I then put it down and had to go dig out my City Lights bookmark because I just I knew I needed a San Francisco bookmark for reading this book. Talk to me about writing place and really infusing place because right it's not just landmark name drops because it's more than just you know dropping the names of landmarks or and then she had some sourdough there's a sense particularly with that turf war stuff of being able to feel the city and if anybody has ever visited san francisco you just you have that sense of like yeah these people know this place you know there really was a turf war in chinatown in the 70s and so that was sort of our background inspiration for what would two powerful magical families look like in a very limited geographical space like Mm -hmm. the thing about san francisco is it's really tiny it's seven by seven you can run across it in a short amount of time. And to capture those feelings, we really went with those like micro neighborhood aspects. At one point, Ken calls me and he's like, Julia, what's the name of the parking garage? You know, with the guys playing chess over Chinatown. And I'm like, no, no, nobody parks in that garage. Everyone parks at the Sutter Stockton garage and walks through the tunnel. And that was one small thing that was just for the two of us. But I think it comes out in the flavor of the text. Yeah, we both grew up right around San Francisco. And we were there at a time when there weren't all the Asian markets that there are now. And so our parents had to go up to Chinatown to buy the groceries that they wanted. Actually, I moved to San Francisco when I was eight. And before that, I had lived in Michigan. So for like the first like six, seven years of my life, my parents were just starved for any kind of Asian cuisine because Michigan was kind of a desert for that at that point. They got there and they were thrilled and all, all of a sudden it was like, well, we're just going to go up to Chinatown, you know, every other week. And it was so different from living in the suburbs. We really wanted to, to capture that feel where it, it really was another world. You get there and like, it doesn't even smell like the rest of the city. I actually have another story in mind for Emiko that starts with the idea that Chinatown smells the same, regardless of which city you're in. You know, and I think in some ways, because I grew up in proximity to San Francisco, like I took Chinatown for granted to some extent. And then we did this road trip to the Pacific Northwest and we crossed into Vancouver and then we were driving back from Canada into Washington. And at the border, they stopped us and they were like, well, do you have food in your car? And, and we're thinking, what? I don't understand what he's talking about. We have like snacks, right? And the border guy is like, no, did you go to Chinatown and buy Chinese food in Vancouver? Are you smuggling it back to Seattle? And I found out later, that's like a real thing, or it was back then with a kid, because there wasn't much of a Chinatown in Seattle or Portland. So I also took it for granted. You know how like when you're little and you live somewhere and you don't know, they don't have like Snapple on the yep. West Coast when you're living in the East Coast, right? Like, there's just stuff like that that Ken and I, I think we wanted to capture that feeling of, oh, San Francisco is like its own, like, it's an enclave, right? But it has its own sort of magical feel to it. It has its own rules. It does feel like an entirely different place when you're inside of it. How closely did you feel you had to stick to reality versus those moments of like, well, I really need there to be a road here or I need to put a building in a different place. 
I'm always just fascinated by where people draw that line around like, I'm going to tell you about this place that's real and this place that's real and this place that's not. And, and how you determine that play with our reality. I think we really want it to be realistic if we're talking about like how long it's going to take her to get across the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course, if we need her to get across the city in five minutes, there's magic. So you can always do that. But if we're talking about her like running across the city, then we would get out a map and say like, okay, is this reasonable? She can, you know, can she run two miles across the city along this path? We stuck in a couple landmarks that are very iconic, like the Palace of Fine Arts, obviously the park. But the whole idea behind this was not only is San Francisco like a magical place on its own, but we wanted there to be like this other layer of like, where do these dragon people, these dragon people live. You know, if you know the right door to go through, then all of a sudden you're in amongst all these people or you're all of a sudden a sheep among wolves. Yeah. And the landmarks are real faithfully. We followed them. We studied Google Maps. But, you know, the notion of like a magical library inside the San Francisco Public Library, right? What do you mean that's not real? (laughs) (laughs) I guess all of us together here can agree that libraries are magical already. But this notion that there was like a hidden domain and that there was this all-powerful being that ruled within, we kind of like that feel. And that's what we wanted to create. There's so much mystery and lore in this book. I mean, the shards, these satellite spaces that are kind of quantumly entangled with our world. And for all the opportunities that we get to see those and visit those and hear people talking about them, there's still so much open and and left to discover And meanwhile, like the plot is also just barreling forward. And it makes me want to talk. It makes me want to ask you about balancing a good standalone story and starting something, starting something new, starting the first book in a series. It's our introduction to everything. We got to hook everybody so that they keep coming back. And there's this bullet train plot that's barreling ahead that also tells a more or less self-contained story within that larger world that you're building. Tell me about balancing the two. We're real world building nerds. <laughs> if if we're allowed to run off the leash, we'll just keep building more nooks and crannies into the world. I mean, that's the part that I love about a series like Dresden, right? He's had so many books to keep adding layer upon layer. And when we went through the expansion of the book, we're like, okay, this is what we're shooting for now. We want something that feels really, really rich. I think this is also where it's good that we have an editor <laughs> to help us like say like, okay, no, 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 you don't, you don't need all of this right here. You need to actually be moving the story forward. But I think we were actually kind of surprised in the editing process that there were definitely some situations where we were just trucking along with the plot and our editor, Claire, she was like, well, no, 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 no. You want to slow this down a little bit here. You want to give us a little bit more backstory. Tell us about this. Tell us about this. And she helped us really find a better balance point for that trading off between plot and world building. Claire was also like, tell us how Emiko feels about this, because she has some strong opinions. And this actually changed the book more than anything else in the revision process. When we stopped to think about, well, how does Emiko feel about this? The book got darker. We were like, wow, she feels pretty bad about this. This sucks. I think initially the book was a little more, I want to say like snarky or humorous. And we cut a lot of that because once we start exploring that interiority of her complicated family dynamics and that generational trauma that she's, you know, still living through, we thought, oh, that that doesn't feel great. You know, 
Yeah. And, you know, she didn't come to San Francisco under the greatest of circumstances. She spent two years kind of pushing all that down. And then everything in the book is just digging it all up for her. And so, like Julia said, we were tasked with, let's figure out what's going on inside her head. And that let us dig all that up for her. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that as a reader will always turn me off from anything, but certainly urban fantasy is when it relies a little too much on like the one dimensional hero who's, you know, snark, 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 quip, quip, quip. And at the end, the author wants you to feel something because they've had some loss or they, they've had some setback. And you're like, well, I know the next book is still going to start with this person being like, quip, 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 quip. So why should I invest? And I was invested from Emiko from the beginning. And I think it was that interiority, the complexity of, of where she's outwardly putting up this wall around people, but then we're also spending so much time in her head and you get to see her as something more than, you know, having a very special set of skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we love the, like, highly skilled protagonist. That's actually one of our favorite things. <laughs> Ken and I are preparing for the San Diego Book Festival, and we're on this panel, which is about, like, coming out of retirement. And it's funny because I realized I cannot resist the trope of one last job, mm-hmm. right? And your protagonist does have really mixed feelings, right? Because on the one hand, it feels good to use your skills. But on the other hand, sometimes you fall back on bad habits that you realize like, oh, this is not healthy for me. This also makes me want to ask you about writing action sequences. Each scene was crystal in my mind and I understood the stakes. I understood where people were in space. It was awesome. And I want to know more about writing about writing these action scenes. Hey, it worked, Ken. <laughs> you have no idea how happy that makes me. You know, Ken and I are very different. He, I think, plays like a movie in his head, and then it's like he will get that right before he puts a word on the page, whereas I diagram it. Like, I literally draw a picture and place people so I can figure out where they are. I think one of my very early and profound craft lessons that I learned was this idea that if you're going to have an action scene, it can't just be about the fight. You have to be delivering some other aspect of the story in the fight as well. And I really took that to heart after I learned it. And I immediately started seeing like if I was writing an action scene, and I was like, this is just a bunch of people wailing on each other. And then it's like, well, okay, this is fun to write, but what am I really doing? And I think the biggest thing to your comment about I have a special set of skills, right? There, there needs to be consequences to every one of these action sequences. There needs to be something that happens at the end where you're like, oh, well, yeah, we had this action scene and we had this fight and it was glorious, but this thing kind of sucks, right? And I think that helps make the action scenes feel real and feel like you know what's happening and why. It gives it more weight rather than just being like some some scene that you just like, oh, okay, yeah, they're fighting. I'll just skip to the end and see what happens next. Yeah, and the thing about it, if you've ever been in a fight, is that it's very fast. The fights themselves are very intense and usually short. So the prose has to suit that, but also slow it down enough for the reader to envision what is happening. And so, you know, you don't want a really verbose fight scene because that would be absurd. But also there needs to be, I think, that suitable pause where there is actually this interior consequence that's happening. It is nice when you have tourists 
in the scene too, right? The person who isn't the professional. Yeah. And then you can kind of get the feel from them like, wait, what's happening? Yeah, that is a really nice trick too, to use those things that do slow it down just enough for it to really register in the reader's mind and not flash past, but also not bog it down. I cannot remember the book, but as you were talking about this, I was thinking about I read one time a fight in an elevator in like a midtown New York office building. And the fight was like three pages long. And I was like, that elevator got to that floor <laughs> like maybe a page and a half ago. And it's funny because we, you know, Ken, you said the thing earlier of like, if we needed her to get all the way across town, we have magic for that. And I loved even in all of these moments where there are these opportunities for magic, the reader understands the cost. Like I'm thinking about the talons in particular, which is such a good invention. They teach you so much about the world, about the people, about the stakes in such a concise package. Like, yes, this is this awesome magical artifact and that has consequences. The talons are a bit of inspiration that we took out of John Wick because we really like the idea of the coins that they use to pay for everything. We wanted some kind of token that they would use to trade favors, right? I actually rewatched John Wick this past summer, the first one. I realized the lore of the coins is actually not well thought out. The way he spends the coins, it's like sometimes it's for something really expensive and sometimes it's for something really cheap. It doesn't really give you a good idea of what the coin is worth and what, what does it take for him to earn one. We weren't really thinking about that when we came up with the talents, but we did know that that the idea of the talent was that this is an obligation. If your great-grandparent gives a talent to somebody, that family can hold on to it. And everybody descended from that person can be called upon to fulfill it. We wanted it to be so significant that you wouldn't spend it lightly. You wouldn't trade this favor that could bind your descendants unless it was to effectively preserve the legacy that would enable you to have descendants, right? I want to ask about mythology. It's like, I don't see fox spirits and death gods that often. I don't see descendants of dragons that often. Talk to me about blending all of these things together to find your cosmology for this book. What you took, what you were like, eh, that's cool, but it doesn't fit, you know? Well, first of all, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so when we started researching, this is when we realized like, oh, when we think about monsters, these fantastical beings in our Western lore and canon, they tend to be corporeal, but when we were investigating East Asian things that were perceived to be scary, it was ghosts and demons, and it's a different thing. And I was like, okay, well, if you're corporeal, how do you battle that? How do you fight ghosts and demons and, like, death gods? And so a lot of it was about asking questions. We were like, okay, well, how, how do we do this? How would we do this? If you believe you're descended from dragons, how does that affect the way you behave? Asking questions was how Ken and I interrogated what we're going to use when we make our world. Like the other interesting thing that happened was, like Julia said before, we grew up on things like Dragonlance and Tolkien. And so we grew up with this very Western idea of what a dragon is. It's a big lizard that lives in a cave or underground and sits on top of a pile of treasure. And breathes fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. But the Asian dragon is, is a very different being. It's a god of water and weather. It's more like a snake, morphologically. Or it's chimeric, like it has yeah. antlers and, you know, yeah. just different characteristics. It's not typically an antagonist in the stories. They're not necessarily good guys, but they're also not just like 
I think Western dragons are portrayed in traditional fantasy novels as like, like almost like a force of nature. You can't reason with a dragon. They just do what they do because that's, that's what dragons got to do what dragons got to do. But Asian dragons, they have personalities, right? They have wants and needs. They're like fickle gods, right? And then when we were talking about the people descended from the dragons, we're like, okay, we can take all those dragon characters and just like compress them down into people. You, then you also have like the fallibilities of, of the people. So now you've got these really powerful people who are really just as human as any of us too, right? And that, that I think that makes for a really interesting storytelling. So normally here, I would be introducing the third interview our little moment of zen to button out the episode. I recorded an interview for this episode with a stunt performer in TV and film, and I'm not going to air the interview because there is a strike on and we don't cross picket lines. I hope at some point you will get to hear the interview. It was fantastic, and we spent a lot of time talking about why, in fact, it is important for us to be able to talk about craft and explain craft to people beyond individual projects because we are all so much more than individual projects. But right now, it is impossible to understate the importance of the strikes that are happening in Hollywood and the way that they ripple out to every possible creative industry. Science fiction promised us that technology would advance in such a way that we would be able to let go of drudgery and work. We would free up our lives for imagination, relaxation, just joy. And instead, in 2023, we see technology, or more specifically, the people who control technology, those Silicon Valley tech bros, trying to make it so that technology makes our art so that we can work more. Not to put too fine a point on it, but fuck those guys. It is fitting in this episode, which is about how pros can grapple with challenge and also learn from visual mediums and visual storytelling to acknowledge just how existential this all is and that we are all in it. Whether or not you are creating or if you are just experiencing culture, this matters. There are things that you can do, like supporting strike funds, not crossing the picket lines, looking at you, Drew Barrymore. You can tell I feel very strongly about this, and I have to hope that you do too. I hope that as you think about the stories that you are consuming and the culture that you are consuming or participating in, that you think about what makes those things wonderful. The answer, of course, is the humans, the people, the people who want to share their stories with you the people who want to share their worlds with you, the people with whom we might be able to imagine something greater, something better, or even just a little escape from the absolutely crushing terror that it is to be alive. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. See you out there on the lines, whether metaphorically or literally. And if you cross it, well... <laughs> I'll save that for off air. This has been Tor Presents Voyage into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lencioni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the teams at Tor and at LitHub and to all of you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>